Hello, business builders. Welcome to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we interview founders of America's fastest growing companies. Our mission is to arm you with the tools and the confidence to scale your own venture. So to that end, every now and then, we gladly welcome a non-founder leader, thinker, or influencer to help you do just that. I'm Drew McClure. My co-host is Jordan Mitchell, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, friends, welcome back to the podcast. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today, my man. Oh, absolutely, Drew. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So today, we're going to do something a little different. Typically, we have our team craft a, a bio where we would start off kind of sharing a, a brief uh, summary of your company and its story before we kick off the interview. But I've been encouraged by our mutual friend, Trevor, to actually let you tell that story because he says you tell it so well uh, of what ISG is, what it does, and, but how, how it came to be because I think that's a big origin story for you as well. Yeah. So if you're comfortable with that, I'd love to actually turn that part over to you uh, and just hear that origin story of everything. Yeah, you want to go all the way back to the beginning? Bring it, man. Yeah, what the, yeah. I think he said the story you tell those analysts when they, yeah, when every new right. analyst. I know, I know that story. So yeah, that's what he wants. Was, uh, it starts when I was two years old. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, it, um, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, I had a, was fortunate to be from an entrepreneurial family. My, uh, my father ran a business that his dad started back in 1917. And my, um, uh, my uncle ran a business that his father started, my grandfather, who was kind of my mentor. And uh, my grandfather was kind of a wacky entrepreneur that did a bunch of things. And, um, and a lot of them didn't make a lot of money, but he had a lot of fun. And me, as an example, we were supposed to go on an RV trip one year, one summer, and he was trying to rent RVs um, to go. And you couldn't find an RV rental place in North Carolina. They would sell them, but they wouldn't rent them. And so he had to go to Tennessee. And long story short, as soon as we got back, he opened his own RV dealership. You know, he was just that wow. kind of guy. Um, yes, he, love that. He was a test pilot for experimental aircraft. He raised competitive Dobermans. He had a manufacturer's rep business. So it was just interesting. And I just, I grew up believing <laughs> that being an entrepreneur was kind of normal. And then working for a big company was a little, you know, sort of unusual and risky and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, it's starting when I was 13, I began to work in the warehouse of my father's industrial construction business, which again, my grandfather started a long time ago. That, that grandfather, you know, too, obviously, I never met. He died before I was born. Hmm. And so um, anyway, uh, it was industrial insulation, which is like the, I joke, the sexy side of construction. It you know, essentially is the itchy, you know, heavy, heavy duty stuff that you put over pipes and boilers and hospitals. So I started working in a warehouse, and then as I turned 16, I drove trucks, and then I eventually worked out in the field doing jobs. It was very difficult labor where you take like duct tape at the end of the day to get the fibers out of your skin, all yeah. the glass fibers and everything. And uh, anyway, uh, I began to just kind of move through that business. Actually, um, uh, my father let me do sales one summer, and and I, uh, I I was successful at it. And I was, and I remember him handing me like uh, 15 files, and he goes, "Go try to sell." these customers, because we were a distributor as well as a contractor, because we were fairly large, 120 employees. Anyway, long story short, I came back and I sold nine of them. And I said, Dad, I'm really sorry. I couldn't sell the other six. I can only sell nine. He goes, well, these are all people that recently fired us. So I didn't think you'd sell any of them. <laughs> I, was trying to give you, I was trying to keep you from um, screwing up any relationships. So I just gave you the low risk stuff. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> that is amazing. But it was a good bonding experience for my dad and I as he began to see, yeah, maybe this kid could actually do something. Well, unfortunately, uh, you know, I went off to college at University of North Carolina. I continued to work 
summers and uh, Christmas uh, with my dad. And then um, when I was 20, I, I was uh, eight days after my 20th birthday, he passed away. And uh, so I was in between my sophomore and junior year and he died. And um, he had uh, mesothelioma, which is his bestest related cancer. So essentially the business, you know, was the, the cause of his death. Wow. And, um, and so the board meeting occurred immediately after that, the funeral. And it was in the den of my mom and dad's house. And it was my mother who hadn't worked, you know, had a job um, since she was, you know, a teenager. My aunt, who was a missionary, um, a retired missionary. My grandmother, who was in her 90s, who just buried her fifth child. And then, uh, you know, some other family members. So it was like this, not really a true board, uh, an operational board. There was no succession plan. And out of 120 employees, my dad was the only one with a college degree. And so uh, they didn't know what to do. And so they asked sure. me if I would drop out of college to help hold the business together. And so I did. So I dropped out of Chapel Hill um, in 1988 and uh, took the next you know, eight or nine months to basically try to hold the company together while we tried to find a CEO. And my father was sick for about a year and a half and, um, the last, and he chose, he wouldn't acknowledge he was dying for religious kind of faith reasons. And so there was no planning, there was no nothing. And so he'd been sick for four or five months leading in. And so as a result, the company was declining, you know, pretty rapidly. We were on track to lose um, over a million dollars and it, it would have probably sunk the company. And again, you know, the 75 years old at this point, it was founded in, you know, 19, early 1900s. And, uh, you know, and here I am 20 years old, kind of in charge and, uh, and literally in charge. I mean, you think that sounds bizarre, but it, it was, but it just was what it was. The banks cut off a lot of credit, uh, customers quit paying bills, people began to assume the company was going under and they were going to quit and go work somewhere else. Uh, during, after I took over, um, we had a man killed on a job and wow. it was a weird, bizarre situation where it was unclear if it was a health issue or it was a work related issue, but he died on the job. It, he had a brain aneurysm that it wasn't, it could have been triggered by a fall. And so anyway, you know, dealing with that, a lot of stuff going on. And we, um, and so I dug in, really examined the business, really tried to understand it. My dad was a great guy. I mean, a great, great guy. Like people loved him, but he wasn't the most savvy business guy. And so the business had never been super profitable. And I'd always seen a lot of opportunities. So I began to implement things that I just hoped <laughs> would work. And one of them was I just called every customer that owed us money to collect it. And we had really a ton of money that was owed to us that wasn't paid. Like if you looked at the ratios, they were just worst in class. And so once people began to understand the story and who I was and what I was trying to do, you know, they began to be to pay on time because my dad was such a good guy and they would even prepay uh, jobs. We hadn't done yet. A few customers and like the guy that died on the job, our insurance broker, uh, they canceled our insurance and our insurance broker actually paid our premiums with the new carrier just because we couldn't afford to pay them. And wow. we got out of business. So all these people rallied to help. A lot of the employees you know, helped. And one of the things that I did that was probably the most effective was I, I used every single job we did. You, know, you think about construction, you bid time and material, hours and you know, product. And every single job was unprofitable. I mean, literally, at the, you, when you look at a business, you look at the unit economics. And because if they're good, then you've got some other problem. Our unit economics are terrible. And so I began to talk to the estimators about, hey, we got to bid more higher pricing. And they said, we wouldn't win any work. And, and some of the work we did was public uh, government. And so they published the bids and they were right. I mean, we were winning these things, but, but not by, um, you know, we, we, we wouldn't have won them if we'd raised our prices. So anyway, I began to try to figure out what the heck was going on. 
And so I went to our best crew and said, this is how many hours and the dollars I have in it. This is how much materials, anything you come in under that, I'll give to you, right? So your goal, anything under the estimate, I'll give to you. And literally immediately, every job was profitable <laughs> after that. Wow. <laughs> after wow. A couple months, after Interesting. A couple months, yeah, yeah. After a couple months, I began splitting whatever the gap was. But, you know, these are guys making, you know, 15 bucks an hour. Suddenly, you're making 40 or $50 an hour. They were just highly motivated. And so Heck we yeah. aligned their incentives and everything. And, uh, and so that really was helpful. Um, and, and ultimately, my job was to bring in a new CEO. And so we did bring in someone. Um, unfortunately, he didn't do a great job. But, but when I left, the company was on track to make a million dollars. And so it had gone to losing, to, to making money. And so he took over and, you know, just had, had a bunch of, you know, bought a bunch of software and did a bunch of things. And it, uh, ultimately, we had to sell the business in distress several years later. And I, uh, I had chosen not to go back and be part of the business. And uh, anyway, long story short, though, as you can imagine, it was a trial by fire, and it was, um, it was uh, quite a formative experience. And sure. it did a couple of things for me. Um, and it was a tough time, personally, to be honest with you. I was in Charlotte, and none of my friends were there. I was all by myself. I remember just being a dark winter, just like getting dark at like 5 o'clock every day, it felt like. And, you know, and I ate. I had a body by Bojangles. I was eating it, you know, <laughs> yeah. eating out, you know, not working out. And, you know, and I, you know, I'm a college kid, right? I'm a fraternity guy. Exactly. Anyway, it's just like, ah, uh, it, was, it was challenging. But what it did do is it gave me a level of financial discipline that I swore. I remember being by myself there one night. And I swore I would never, ever get in that financial situation again. And so as a result, the business that I built has had just tremendous financial discipline. And so we've gone from no, no employees working out of my basement to um, 185 as of right now. And uh, we've never had any debt. We've never had any outside investment and we've never not made money. And wow. Um, so I can tell you a little bit more about the business, but that was one of the things that really shaped it and formed it was that experience. The second thing it really shaped it is I decided I really didn't want to have hourly employees, you know, whatever I did in the future. I wanted because it, that was another real challenge. There were just a lot of issues. The, the, for, as an example, the sheriff would come by once a week to garnish people's wages, you know, that weren't paying child support or whatever. And it's just like, really? Yeah, I got to deal with this. Whoa. And, uh, all kinds of just wacky, you know, experiences. So um, anyway, uh, the bottom line is I went on to graduate college. I had a bunch of job offers and I took the lowest paying offer I had. Because of my resume, it was so unusual. Uh, I, I mean, I had a, t a ton of job offers. And I took literally the one that was 50% of the comp of the highest offer I had. And the reason was I wanted to learn how to sell because it became very clear to me as I was running that business that if things hit the fan, you better be able to sell because that's about the only way to get out of most problems is wow. to sell work. And so I, awesome. they had just amazing sales training. It was really good. It was a group of, it was very similar to my current company, about 150 people. And, um, and I sold and it turned out I wasn't very good at selling. <laughs> I, I, uh, all the insecurities that I had that I somehow managed to bury come rushing to the surface mm. as you get rejected over and over again. And it was just really brutal. And so you guys are involved in the coaching business. And so I have had over the years, many, many coaches. In fact, literally minutes before our call, I hung up with a phone with a coach. Um, and so I still, I, I'm a big believer in getting third party help and really understanding you know, how to improve and how to go to the next level. And so in the sales environment, man, I struggled. I was failing miserably. I was about to get fired and I, I just didn't get it because I was generally competent, 
But um, I then realized that the way I was being trained to sell just wasn't a good fit for me. Uh, there was a lot of like ninja mind tricks to help overcome objections. So anyway, long story short, and again, this is another chapter in the, the final story, is um, I began to treat sales like a science and really understand how, to, how people buy and how to do it in an integrity-based way. So I yeah. created a methodology called integrity-based selling, and I began to deploy that just for myself, all by myself. And it just was really successful for me. And so we're in an environment of software sales where you sold one deal a month to be on quota. I sold, you know, uh, six deals in six weeks. I mean, I just started slaying wow. it and doing great. And, um, and so it was a lot of fun. And the, uh, but the, the CEO of who are, the firm I worked for went through some personal life issues and it changed his behavior and to the point where he was doing things that I felt like were integrity issues. And I can share uh, one of those if you'd like, or if you'd rather at the end, I can share it. Uh, but it was a really interesting uh, life lesson because I, I ended up doing something that he ordered me to do that I just didn't feel good about. It. And it caused me ultimately to leave the company. Mm. Um, and it, it just seared in my mind that integrity is just so critical. And like integrity is, you know, being honest and all that kind of stuff. But it also is the alignment between what you're thinking, uh, what you're saying, and what you're actually doing. And that's mm. my definition of it, is your alignment of your thoughts, words, and behaviors. And so that became super critical to me to, if, if there was something I needed to do that I didn't think was the right thing to do, I, I couldn't do it until I either got my head right or I, you know, figured out another way to do it. And sure. so a lot of times there are things in business that you need to do that, 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 that clearly seem like the best opportunity, but they're not right. You know, and they're not necessarily illegal or you know, wildly unethical. They're just not the right thing to do. Yeah. And so... I, I have such a strong feeling around that, that it's forced me to figure out a way to innovate through that so that I can align everything and have that in sort of integ in, inherent integrity. And so it really drove in me um, a belief that you, 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 that you may not always do it the easy way, but there's a way to do it where you can feel great about it. And wow. so just being very, very focused on leveraging innovation and you know, spending time to think through ways to do things the right way. And so uh, that was very helpful to me. And uh, then I went on to another firm and um, ultimately I launched a, a, another business, not the one I run today, that was essentially based on the selling methodology. So I went around, I was essentially a sales coach, but I also integrated a lot of technology. And so I did that for a couple of years, you know, single shingle out of the basement. Um, and I really liked that. And I went on to grad school at Emory to get an MBA. And then I uh, joined Deloitte Consulting because consulting is where I really wanted to be. So I went on to Deloitte Consulting and uh, did a lot of things there and, you know, basically was the first big company I'd ever worked for and our clients were huge. And I realized really quickly that being an entrepreneur is where I needed to be. I didn't like kind of being, I didn't like being told what to do when it wasn't something I didn't feel like was the right thing to do. And, and I'm not talking about integrity here. I'm talking more just business-wise. I just, it was, there were just things that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm. That, um, you know, for example, things that would drive a lot of fees for the consulting firm, but I didn't feel like we're you know, probably the best thing for the client. And, um, but Deloitte was a great firm in general, but it just, my experience, it just wasn't a good fit. I also realized that really big companies, like, you know, my clients were huge, you know, $60 billion companies are just a brutal place to work and just weren't a good fit for me. And so, um, and so all along my journey leading up to this point, I'm kind of collecting things that are the, what, essentially a wish list of what I would like to find in a company. And so then I left Deloitte for a boutique consulting firm doing procurement consulting, which is what I do today. And I ultimately left there to start my firm. And uh, when I started it, I had two business plans. 
one for the firm that I have today and one for a sales and marketing consulting firm, hmm. you know, which I had previously had. And I chose the one I have today largely because it was so recession proof, uh, which turned out to be a good choice. Um, you know, in 2008, <laughs> 2009, I'm feeling pretty good right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, as well. And uh, anyway, so that's kind of the journey leading up to where, where I am today. So I started the firm with a real clear vision of what I wanted the firm to be. And what I wanted it to be is the firm that I looked for and couldn't find in the marketplace. So we had uh, three initial core values and today we added, have added a fourth. Um, and then I had a couple of like principles as well. And some of the principles are interesting. They were a, you know, life's too short to work with people you don't enjoy. Right. Yep. And uh, they, there's a book now, you know, that kind of that's related to that, but this is before that. And, um, you know, life's too short uh, not to make money. And so just a belief that as time passes, you've got to find out about it and you've got to invest it in such a way that you're constantly getting better. You're constantly growing. And if you go, if your revenues are flat two years in a row, for me, that's a terrible thing, right? Mm. That's a bad experience. Not other people's revenues, but mine. Because it implies that I didn't learn anything that year. I didn't grow. I didn't change. Wow. And, and I didn't get better. And so for me, that's my motivation. And so our, our three core values, one is integrity above all, which, you know, you can guess where that came from. Um, one is focus on client results. Because in a lot of environments that I got into, I noticed this weird dynamic where, you know, you've got the client here, your company's here, but as the, as the complexity of the business grows, things like internal politics, things like the way the compensation system work, it turns your attention towards the company, right? Mm. To focus on maximizing, you know, your own outcomes or whatever, navigating this sort of complex political bureaucracy, but it has the effect of having you turn your back on the client. So literally you turn around to face the company and your backs to the client. And, you know, ultimately that begins the, the sort of mediocrity that creeps into the business. And so, um, so my point was always, always, always focus on the results of the client. Everything else will take care of itself. So that was the core thing. And then the third is the one that probably defines me the most, and that is excellence and execution. And what that is, my grandmother used to say, if you're going to do something, do it well. And so my whole mantra is to not do a lot of things, to stay focused, but to be the absolute best at them and to every single day, to never be satisfied with where we are and to really focus on just incremental improvements. And part of that could be viewed as, you know, kind of almost negative, right? Like you're, you're sort of never satisfied in a negative way. But for me, it's more of the challenge and the excitement of, you know, I've been giving gifts, I've been given life, I've been given all these things, what am I gonna do with them? And so my strengths are creating something from nothing, right? They're the classic entrepreneurial strengths. So how can I be the best at that? Create as many jobs as I can, pay as many great salaries as I can, get people to buy houses, buy cars, buy babies, you know, drive the economy. That's kind of my strength and what I can do for, for my country and for, you know, for, for the community. And so that's what I focus on is excellence and execution. And it's just super motivating. You know, my motivation is not make money, even though, you know, I, I aspire to make a lot of money and I have made a lot of money, but it's more just to how good can we get? And that I have found that if you do those incremental like 1% improvements across the board and all the core processes and all the different areas, um, one day you pop your head up and you've got a competitive advantage, right? Mm. You don't even realize what's going on. All of a sudden, your close rate on sales calls, for example, is 80%, right? Or, you know, on sales deals is really high. And that just makes life so much easier to run a business when 
when you're performing really well in all those different areas, when your value proposition is unique and differentiated and all those things. And I, one of my little sayings is there are easy ways and hard ways to make money, right? And, and you know, the easy way, you're just life is so much better. You're growing, you know, you're, you're not dealing with a lot of uh, drama and nightmare uh, scenarios. And uh, so I've put a lot of energy into making our business easy and smooth. And so from the outside, it looks, you know, it's a, I mean, we literally have a hockey stick growth chart on our wall and it's actual what it is, but what ultimately the essence of it is not like runaway growth. It was runaway hard work on the front end to build a foundation to enable us to scale excellence. And so we have another saying that is don't scale mediocrity. So in other words, and that's a good one from your coaching perspective, you might want yep. to adopt where, you know, don't try yeah. to grow something that's not a really well-oiled machine right? Because yep. all you're going to do is grow into oblivion. You know, you're just, you're just going to get bigger and it's going to become harder and harder to manage. And, you know, I, I say, uh, for example, in my industry, the average EBITDA or um, profitability is, you know, 10 to 15%. And I often say, I'm just not smart enough to run a 10% EBITDA business. And you have one or two <laughs> bad months and, you know, suddenly you're a 0% EBITDA business. And I hate debt. And I'm, you know, Ken Lay's just afraid of it. And I don't like losing money. And so I, um, you know, we focus on how do we get our EBITDA higher and our EBITDA is significantly higher than average. And, wow. it's because, and but yet we also deliver great results and our price is not crazy high. And, you know, so it's, it's all about just being efficient, smart. Um, and um, anyway, that's kind of the way we think. That's the way I built the business. You know, I started the business in the basement of my house. I didn't have any clients. I left my prior company. I had, I had no non-compete. But I just from an integrity perspective, I didn't want to take any people and I didn't want to take any customers. And I never did. And, um, you know, I never have, uh, even years later. And so I, um, I had one prospect. Um, and so on December 7th, you know, uh, Pearl Harbor Day, I resigned uh, from my company and started my business in 2002. And I, got, I had one prospect that I had attempted to, to provide to my current company. And they, uh, they said they were too small. So I said, hey, you know, when I resigned, I said, would you mind if I called on them? Anyway, long story short, on December 26th, the day after Christmas, the guy called me and said, yeah, we want to do this deal. And in January, we worked on the contract. And just kind of a funny entrepreneurial story. And working out of my basement, the guy knew it. I, you know, I shared with him my circumstances. And uh, this is procurement consulting work. So you go in and you're going you're gonna to negotiate with their vendors and take out costs. And so I'm sitting across from this guy named Dan and the proposal I'd offered him was you pay me $5,000 and then everything else will be a percentage of what I save you, right? The $5,000 is a retainer. And I just, it was nominal, right? I mean, it was zero. I ended up making hundreds of thousands of dollars on the client. So in the big scheme of things, it was nothing, but he's hemming and hawing as he signs the contract. And I'm like, what's the, do you have, is there an issue? What's going on? <laughs> he goes, well, my CFO is concerned about giving someone $5,000 that, lives in there, works out of their basement. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, because I had saved up a bunch of money. I was pretty financially stable for a young guy. Yeah. So I took my car keys, slid him across the table and said, hey, it's paid for. I'll give you the title. You can hold during the project. <laughs> and he was <laughs> signed the contract and we went on our merry way. But yeah, we ended up saving millions of dollars for them and uh, you know, making pretty good money. And the beauty of it was the payment stream came after I finished the work. So it created a, a, a year-long payment stream on the back end. And, I, and that was for every project. I did about 15 projects and they were all timed differently. So what, what it created was a funding mechanism for growing the business. So I did all the work, which I self-funded. 
And then I, I did um, all these projects and they created payment streams that I could hire into and I could grow into. So it really worked out well. Wow. Okay. One. Wow. That was amazing. Uh, I've literally have a page of notes right now of things that I want to ask about or dive deeper into. So uh, we'll see how skillfully we can, we can navigate this. Uh, first, I just want to share uh, some of the similarities that I'm excited and um, didn't know we'd be having. So one is, is some of your, your kind of core philosophies on even why you started the business. You know, for, for us, we said something similar. When you say life's too short, you know, not to do things with people you love in a sense, right? Have fun. Yeah. And then life's too short not to make more money. That's kind of our philosophy for why we built a business instead of being an employee somewhere. Is we said we want to build things with our friends, meaning business. We want to have fun while we're doing it. And we want to kick ass as a result. Meaning that like we didn't just build something and have fun. That, like it delivered real value to the yeah. world and, and therefore returned real value to us, right? Yeah. Um, so that sounds like similar to you. Also, I heard someone say a long time ago, when you uh, – when you see something you wish existed in the world, just go create that thing instead of complaining about it. Yeah. And it sounds like that was what you did is you said, man, I just wish this existed in the consulting world. And so you went and created that thing. Um, yeah. And your grandfather and the RV rental, you yeah. know, it's yeah. always, I, been yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like clearly built in your, into your DNA. I mean, when you first were sharing that story, I was like, I would love to see, I know he probably didn't have them, but the five different business cards he has, like, here's my Doberman business. Yeah. Here's my RV business. It's like, what? Is this real? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could tell you a lot of stories about it. And there's, a, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Well, just top of mind. Again, we can go wherever we want to go. But top of mind, two things came to mind. Uh, one is what when you do look back at the business model that you said you chose, oh, you know, option one over option two, in a sense. And you had one with recession proof in mind. And now we are in a recession that has even shot holes in many recession proof plans because of how weird of a recession it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, what were some of the core tenets of that business model that is uh, maybe proving to be helpful at this point? Yeah. Well, one of the, uh, you know, when I talk to people who are starting businesses and thinking about it, it's like, you know, what, what is ultimately the value proposition and, and what is, you know, how defensible is it? How, how, how provable is the outcome of, a value, of the value proposition? In other words, can you measure the value that you've created? Or is it kind of ethereal and everything else? And I think the velocity of growth of the business is largely on either A, you're solving a problem or you're driving real value that's measurable. And in consulting, the problem is most consulting projects, you can't really measure the value. Yeah. And so when I was at Deloitte, I did an 18-month project uh, for a huge company and at the end, that was kind of unclear what value we created, right? Because the client had to go implement some of the work. And it's probably kind of like coaching where, you know, you do, do some awesome work, but the person doesn't implement it properly. And, you, yeah. know, kind of, you know, what did you accomplish? It's not very satisfying. And for me, it was devastating. It was like just like very unfulfilling to feel like, again, time is a big deal to me. And I wasted 18 months of my life and I, I didn't feel like I accomplished anything. So in procurement related consulting, you're essentially going in, looking what companies spend money on other than payroll and figuring out ways to take out cost. So if you're buying you know, this unit of whatever it is, can you buy it more efficiently, more effectively, or can you eliminate the need for it entirely? Mm. And so a lot of it boils down to negotiating contracts. And so we, it's, a, it's a fascinating business uh, that we have because you essentially get into everything that's bought and sold in the United States. Like we have gotten involved in cell phone tower maintenance, on sourcing chicken and desserts for theme parks, on 
you know, plastic, you know, $150 million of plastic gloves, you know, <laughs> and, and all that stuff you, you learn about the industry and the business. It's really fascinating. But my, uh, but to answer your question, the value prop that we have is that you can actually measure results and outcomes. So if you pay me a dollar, I can tell you how many dollars I give you back and I give them back to you quickly. And so, for example, our, our, our average ROI for our clients is about um, 700 to 800%. So you give me a dollar, I give you eight. And then if you do the math, it's like a, a four week payback period, right? So the savings begins to be generated over every 12 months. And, you know, wow. when one eighth burns off after, you know, a matter of weeks. And so it doesn't always work out that way, but sometimes the ROI is lower. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes it takes longer to achieve through for a variety of structural problems that you have to deal with. But, but the main thing is you can actually demonstrate results and you can get paid on those results. Mm. And for me, that was the purest kind of consulting because consulting, you know, rightfully has a, a rap of being a little uh, sort of elitist and a little snobby and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there's different kinds of consulting, but I personally am pretty low to the ground, right? I'm not uh, the kind of guy, you know, who's uh, driving around in limos eating grape food pollen or whatever, you know, yeah. I'm pretty low to the ground. And for me, you know, when you run a business that's like 75 years old, that's just nosediving into the ground, I mean, that just literally is going to crater, you know, you can think big thoughts all you want. You can develop PowerPoint presentations all you want, but it doesn't matter, mm. right? And mm. so, and the reality is it doesn't really matter in a well-run business, right? What matters is execution and action. And so that's what I focus on. So in our space, right, if you look at our competitors, we compete with some of the big strategy consulting firms you'd be very familiar with. They literally do the same thing, but they don't actually execute, meaning they don't actually negotiate with the vendors, which uh, is where all the value lies. And so yep. for us, um, you know, the thing that's unique about it is right now is people are looking to take out costs and, um, and, you know, they can take out jobs uh, or they can reduce what they pay on stuff. And so we're focused on the latter, which in my view saves jobs, right? I mean, mm. it protects jobs. And, uh, and the other thing that's interesting is we force suppliers to be really competitive. You know, a lot of times they don't like us because they have to bid low. But in order to be profitable at those lower prices, they have to improve their business, right? They have to yeah. gain efficiencies in their business. So in a way, we're making the whole market more competitive and making our country more competitive and, you know, as a result, which is good for, for everybody. So uh, anyway, that's the story that I tell myself. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> I love that, man. Um, you know, that actually hits a, a note for us that we've been uh, paying attention to that I think we, we, I know we already knew, but Corona highlighted it for us. COVID highlighted it for us, which is being in a similar business, being in a, you know, we kind of straddle the line sometimes of coaching and consulting, right? And yeah. it's, it'd be a, kind of a boring conversation on here for the audience of how to distinguish between the two. But we, we kind of go back and forth. We're definitely yeah. more coaching focused, but we have some consulting-esque services, right? Uh, but it was that tangibility of the result that hasn't been troublesome for us with active clients. Like anyone we've ever worked with, uh, at least as far as I know, has never doubted the value of what we bring, right? We have right. incredible record of ongoing clients because they get the value. But it's on the front end. It's actually on the sales part. Yeah. That yeah. we, we realize, especially when we hit a downturn where money's even tighter, that we better be able to demonstrate or be able to articulate how this is going to translate into uh, dollars for them or, yeah. or a result that matters to them, a problem that matters to them being solved. And so a lot of the work we've done over the last six months has been answering that question. 
So I yeah, love to yeah. hear you saying that. It's like we had to go, and we're still driving hard in the paint. I think we've, I think we have greatly increased our clarity on on those conversations of knowing here's how we can track this, here's what we can solve, uh, and there's still more to go. But this this conversation is inspiring for me yeah. because we've seen that directly translate into conversations on the front end being much well, easier I mean, to have. Yeah, I mean, any kind of professional service, right, coaching or consulting, it's, it's very difficult to demonstrate the value, right? And so you have to be a really good storyteller. Mm. And it has to be in, in the form of stories that, like, that resonate, that sound yep. familiar. And, uh, yeah, we have a saying. It sounds like you guys are 100% on the right track. We have a saying, strike at the heart of value, right? Strike at the heart of, like, and so it's like the heart, but it's where the value is. And so you kind of got to, it, it's, it's ultimately being successful, I think, in taking a, you know, essentially a professional service and making it real is you have to have the anecdotes that resonate. And mm. so it's all about that. And I remember in the early days when I'd be selling, people were like scratching their head, like, what do you do exactly? I don't quite understand. And so I remember I would just throw out story after story after story. And then somewhere in the meeting, I'd see them sit up, literally their body language would change. And then I'm like, yes, you know, yes, this is it. And so then we mm. would, you know, then the whole dynamics of everything would change and they would get it. And, um, and in the early days, I was willing to take risk. You know, like you didn't have to pay me um, if you, um, you know, if I didn't deliver results. And so that really uh, essentially, if you will, uh, lubricates the process and eliminates yep. a lot of friction and makes things easier. The downside is you, you got to be really smart about the way you pay, contract that and paper it because there's a lot of ways to get taken advantage of too. Sure. Uh, I learned a lot of hard lessons early on. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got this whole concept of uh, 10,000 hours creating excellence. Yeah. Um, I um, was a, and this, this is a risk that you, you could face as well. I was the consultant um, at Deloitte that was the jack of all trades. They'd parachute me in in projects nobody had ever done before. And I, I loved it. I, I loved figuring stuff out. I loved, I've got kind of ADD. I love mm -hmm. doing new stuff. But the problem with that is, you know, you really didn't develop any depth. And so when I started my firm, uh, I actually had another name for it. I named it something else. I incorporated it. And it was a terrible name. It meant a lot to me, but it was, I mean, it was an awful name. And so I joke, I still get made fun of here at the company for it, but um, I changed the name and I called it Insight Sourcing Group. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to force myself to stay focused in strategic sourcing, which is the mm. kind of term of discipline. And so really we have not deviated from that. We've stayed focused in that area and we've done 6,000 projects in that discipline. Now they're highly diverse across every, all the stuff you could buy all over the place. But we've become so freaking good at strategic sourcing that we're considered the best in the country. We're the largest boutique anywhere that I know of, but um, certainly in North America. And our quality level is you know, perceived very high. And uh, we now have uh, five business units. We have four business units. So we do some things beyond strategic sourcing, but it's all procurement related. Mm. So we stuck to our knitting. And there's just a power and focus that I didn't yeah. really anticipate. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's like it creates this sort of... Um, this sort of breakthrough capability that, that just creates tremendous velocity. So it's a combination of getting your value proposition right, getting, getting the ability to make it real both in the sales process, but in yeah. particular during and after the project to make it real, really be able to demonstrate outcomes that, that then it creates its own stories, right? And then, yeah. then stories become easier to tell. And so, um, and then staying focused is the other piece that's so helpful. And so as an example in consulting and coaching is probably the same way, it's extremely common to get a bunch of customers to sell them a bunch of, you know, sell them one thing 
and to say, well, I can go out and sell a bunch of new customers or I can come up with something new to sell the existing customers, right? Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a good, it's not a bad business strategy, but what it results in is a small consulting firm that does a lot of different stuff and they typically don't end up doing any of it well. And so they flame out or they, they, they stall on growth. So anyway, yeah. that's, a, that's the advice I give people is, you know, stay focused and don't yeah. move on to something else until you're the best at what you're doing. Yeah. You give, you give a lot of breadcrumbs that we could follow, but I do want to go back. Uh, one, I want to celebrate uh, before we had this call, thinking about uh, that moment when somebody leans in on a sales call, uh, our mutual uh, connection with Trevor, we were on a demonstration right before you that the hour before was a demo call demonstrating our value proposition and Trevor was leading it and he did hit that moment. So if Trevor, if you get to lean, uh, hear this, you did a good job, <laughs> yeah. man. You, I saw that's that awesome. moment when you yeah, had to lean in and uh, I was very proud of him. I was like, that's it, man. Uh, so I love that, that you put some words to it. Cause I was like, yeah, that's what I was noticing. Uh, good. I want to go all the way back to like that first sales job. Hey, I took, I took half the, the salary opportunity for this, or I took half the opportunity yeah. for this because I want to learn. I love that you had a model and that you, you dove into the science. And I think that is good, but essentially I know that there's mindset and there's process, you know, that if I can get your mindset right and then I can give you a simple process to follow. Now I know I've got Tom cooking if I'm coaching him. So you kind of hit on the science, but I'd love for you to even go into your own path of like, man, you weren't any good at sales. Yeah, you got into science, but I'm guessing some of that process that you came in, came through with your integrity-based selling gave you more than just a process. I'd love to hear that story, and, and I really want the people to hear it because I'm going, hey, that individual who happens to be listening to our podcast that doesn't, that isn't a founder of a company, selling is a skill that you mentioned that I'm a big, big believer in. I'm like, you've got to yeah, learn how to yeah. do it if you want to work for yourself. And people who listen to this podcast, they likely have that kind of aspiration if they're yeah. not already doing it. So you're so talking about the, mind, the mindset side of it is what you're mindset Yeah, side. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, frankly, that is, uh, that is, that is the key to it all. Mm. And are you, um, and so um, I was struggling and I mean, I was, I was dying. I was dealing with just extraordinary stress because I, I, I had a belief that I couldn't fail. I mean, that would, wouldn't allow myself to fail, right? And I just wasn't going to fail. And I, um, I remember, like, it, it created, it was not healthy, to be honest with you. I was saying to myself, you've been so fortunate. You had such a great family. You know, people stretched to send you to a great school and pay, you know, the, the stuff they couldn't afford. Anything less than success is failure, right? It was what mm. I told myself. And so it created a lot of pressure, and, you know, which wasn't probably healthy. But um, I began to, you know, try to sell and I just wasn't successful. What I realized is that there was a misalignment between my mindset and what I was saying. And yeah. what, I was, what I was saying was, hey, I care about you, the customer, but my mindset, I'm getting all this pressure to sell, 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 and I need to make my number and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So ultimately what I did is I, I, um, I created a, uh, a studied indifference to outcomes. In my mind, I became at peace with being unsuccessful on a single sales call. So on an individual sales call, I basically said, all I care about is the results of the client. That's all I care about. I don't care about how much money I make. I don't care about if you say no, it's not going to hurt my feelings. I'm okay with that. And mm. so I, I, at the time, you know, would pray about it uh, before a sales call. And I would basically say, it's not in my hands. It's in your hands. I'm going to do everything I can to prepare. I'm going to do everything I can to do the best job I can. But if it doesn't work out, it's okay. You know, and, and you know, maybe call it a mind trick, call it whatever. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I went in with a, and I was okay if it didn't work out, 
And man, it totally changed the temperature and the way I went into meetings. And wow. it, it didn't give off that vibe of like, you know, we'll call it desperate, desperate or just intense, you know, like, yeah, got to work out, you know, I got to, and, uh, and so I just went in just chillaxed and, and I just really, and what happened, what was so cool was you get in the meeting and all that noise in your head, it just gets quiet. And then suddenly you just get absorbed into what the client is saying and you can really listen to what they say. And you have the, you have the white space in your brain to think about ideas and ways to solve mm. the problem. And, and so you kind of get into their situation. And sometimes I would solve the problem in a way that didn't have anything to do with my solution. Right. And like, they didn't need it anymore because we solved it and they'd go, man, I need a guy like you around. I'll buy your stuff. <laughs> you know, I was like, one of those, yeah. one of those deals. And, uh, and so right. it was just really, um, really helpful to me. And so as wow. I mentioned earlier, I have a coach today and, um, you know, and, and, and you could argue, I mean, I, I'm doing a lot of things well, and a lot of things are going great, but man, I feel like you always have the ability to go to the next level. And one of the things he said that was really powerful to me is if you have a behavior that, that you want to change, the only way you're ever going to do it is to get at the underlying belief system that's holding you back. And so when I was going through my process, struggling with sales, you know, I, I really spent a lot of time going, why? You know, I read, I, I took a year and every morning I read a book for about 45 minutes and all the self-help books you can imagine. I read the Bible, I read them all. And throughout all that, I developed a philosophy and a mindset that has been just incredibly helpful to me for the rest of my life. But one of the things on sales, just as an example, is when I was a kid um, in my neighborhood, you know how you get these magazine drives or you get these things where you go sell stuff, you win prizes through your school and it's a, a fundraiser. And my mom would never let me go out door to door and sell in the neighborhood. And she was mm. embarrassed by it. And she was like, you can't sell to the neighbors. They'll only buy from you because they feel like they have to. And so she would make me go sell to my uncles and, you know, they'd give me money. You know, I'd make my minimum number, you know, through selling to. And so I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I came to the understanding that, wait a minute, I've been taught sales is bad, right? That you're bothering people, that it's negative. And that's not true. Because there are people yeah. who have a problem that needs solving. And my job is to help raise that awareness and then demonstrate I can help them. But I have to be comfortable with the fact that I may not be able to help. Yeah. I may not be the best solution. And so then it becomes a mutual discovery process as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, me forcing whatever I got into their situation, you know, the old hammer and nail, you know, situation. Sure. Um, uh, and so that is subtle, but man, once you institutionalize that and in the way you think, and then to your point, you add you know, good discipline and process to it. Uh, it, I mean, it's crazy how well, yeah, man, that I, I am so pumped. So like as a, as a coach first, I had to coach myself. So the reason I even got into coaching was solving some of my own challenges, solving some of my own lack of discipline or results in certain areas, whether it was physical, mental business. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you begin to experiment, uh, with the people that you coach. And one of the things that I saw Sorry, it seems like we're breaking up some. Is my internet freezing a little, a little bit? bit. Um, is something we came to, to call the personal performance formula or your peak performance formula, right? And it was having worked with people like you, having worked with people in sales and seeing that there's four variables that feel like are always involved in how, basically what your results are, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, well, how we would break it down is there's th these four variables, your strategy, your skills, your stress response, and the story inside your head, 
right? The story you've told yourself. That's good. About yourself. That's some good stuff, yeah. Like but that. what's really what's really cool is you can break it down. So I look at it almost literally like a spine. Uh, and you can talk about alignment and which ones are misaligned. But you start at the top and you have strategy. Right below that is skills. Right below that is stress. Right below that is story. And we're going deeper. So we're going more internal and we're going more intangible. And what's amazing is what you said actually unlocked everything up there was all the way down the story component, right? Mm -hmm. So the story is just internal narrative. It's, it's literally the things that are going on inside of your head that shape how you approach your world, shape whatever. So I even just wrote down a few things that you changed. So your story went from being overly controlling of the outcome to indifferent of the outcome. That was actually a story you told yourself, right? Another one was you said you found out that you had a story in your head that sales is bad, right? Yeah. This, so one of the guys uh, that's become a friend of mine uh, he's now the top, he's now the top sales, uh, medical sales person inside of Abbott. And he was listening actually to a podcast of mine and he was on the way to a hospital to try to close a deal with a new medical device for whatever. And I had this conversation around, uh, the thoughts that, that sabotage us. Right. And so, uh, he sat there in the parking lot. He said he was five minutes late to his meeting because he felt like this was so important around what he was actually doing. Uh, that he said, what is the story I tell myself about sales that's getting me in trouble? And in his head, it was that I'm a nuisance and nobody wants what I have to sell. Yeah. And he was like, and so my question was, who would you be without that thought? Right. So that was where the podcast was like, literally, how would your life, your job be different if you just eradicated that thought? And so he's like, I'm going to try it. So he goes in and he just decided not to assume that he was a burden on this doctor and that he actually had something because he believed in the product. Right. He was like, I actually know this product is great. And let's just approach it that way. And he sold the product within like five minutes, five minute conversation. He calls me freaking out. And now he's like one of the top salespeople yeah. there. He yeah. didn't have any sales training. It wasn't like he changed like, you know, the skill or the strategy, those things matter, but they were way up the line. Right. Yeah. And so what I think is beautiful about what you did is you started like your coach put you, you started on that story and go, all right, I shifted my mindset. What that then did is it shifted your stress response, meaning under pressure, you went from having a pattern of being forced, like trying to force a moment yeah. or force an agenda to now your stress response was actually to be relaxed. Yeah. And in that relaxed, you actually saw the pockets, right? You saw those moments of opportunity as they were emerging, like, oh, there's actually where the, the issue is because I'm here, I'm focused, I'm, I'm calm, yeah. right? And yeah, then from got, there- like, the, the jerk inside your head's like quiet. <laughs> you know, gone. So you gone he's gone so it's just so interesting that like most people are getting paid to address the strategy and the skills which matter they totally matter but i see them as force multipliers right the strategy and the skill is like those actually are force multipliers for once you learn to show up yeah. with a proper mindset and a proper like um posture like it, you know once you get there well then yeah we can tweak your strategy and we can we can tweak your skill set and you'll get a force multiplier on it but if we don't ever address the stuff under the surface, you'll keep self-sabotaging, right? Yeah. Like, no, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, you, you've absolutely figured out the formula. The only uh, thing I would add to it is just gravy on top, if you will, is uh, I also believe that if you've got all that stuff going on in your head, it sends off like a kind of a vibration mm -hmm. that people pick up on. They may not recognize it, but it makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. and, it, 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 and, like, and I call that the misalignment like the integrity issue, the misalignment between your thoughts, words, and behaviors. And because in your, your head, you've got this narrative and it's almost like this thing that people can pick up on. And, you know, we all have our kind of instincts and, 
And I think it's a very subtle thing that gets out there in the universe that undermines you as well. From oh, the other yeah. Place. And it's, yeah. Um, it's, it's, but when it's gone, it's just, it's like then it's just such a natural connection with people. It's just so effective. And, um, I, you know, I've been, my business, we've hired a lot of people. We've had some people come and go. We've had some people uh, that didn't work out. And every now and then you meet someone who's like, the way they think is like, it really is a head scratcher. You can't figure out how they're, I mean, they're really undermining themselves. And, you know, and the answer is that in their mind, maybe going all the way back to childhood, they've got a bad story in their head. And man, it is just causing them not to hear anything and not to understand. And they're incredibly functional in certain areas. But if they get that amygdala hijacking or whatever, if they get Mm -hmm. triggered in that area, they're dead meat. But one of the things that um, maybe offline you may want to talk about is, one of my uh, objectives the last three years has been to develop a, build a world-class leadership development program internally. So we've been heavily involved with psychologists and you know, working on building this program. And we have a, a really cool like four-day offsite and it gets into all this stuff, right? It gets into like very personal, deep stuff. And it's just fascinating how many people have stories like you have or I have, mm-hmm. you know, where you've got self-limiting beliefs. And I mean, when you release those, it can be so game changing. So yeah, well, for me, you guys with, know what you're doing. Sounds yeah, like I think what ex- what excites us, and then uh, Jordan, I'll turn it over to you. But uh, the last thing would just be it. That always sounded if woo uh, woo. I guess would be the word I would use, right? Mm-hmm. Like you'd hear stuff like self limiting beliefs, and it it felt like it was in the same context or the same mouth of like a snake oil salesman. Yeah, you know? kumbaya, right? Yeah. Yeah, but what I got interested in when I was sort of looking at it was like, no, I can track in a sense, like logically, how that thought is going to affect your emotional state, how that's going to affect the actions you take and how that's going to affect the results you get. And it's yeah. like a wheel. And they just, it's like we have these doom loops, as we call them, that those bad stories start to just keep perpetuating certain results and you filter everything through them. So like, Tom, you say something, but I hear, I hear the same, what I was looking for. I heard the insecurity. I heard yeah. the bad news. I heard whatever, you know, the rejection. Oh, here it comes. Mm-hmm. Another person's going to reject me but you can hijack that process. And all of a sudden you've got more helpful thoughts that lead to more helpful emotional states that create better actions yeah. that get better results and it gets its own traction. And that to me is less woo woo, put out a positive vibe to the world and the world will give back to you kind of thing. And instead more goes, no, this just kind of it clearly explains the actions, and the results that you're getting, right? And we can work on that. And that's the, that's the part I mean, that's just, interesting to me. It's ultimately about being a professional and not being, you know, kind of a, a, a emotional goober, you know, who basically yeah. gets triggered by other people. You know, the, whole, the key, the one thing that I think is effective for a lot of people is to say, look, you know, you get to choose your response, right? That was Stephen Covey saying. Mm-hmm. And the, one of our coaches says, uh, you got to put a pause between the flash and the bang. And, you yeah. know, and so we actually create a trigger map. Um, as part of our training where, you know, people are triggered by certain things and they get, get irrational and their head gets loud and noisy and they can't think clearly and they they put on we call it the me filter where wait wait that guy just insulted me whereas they, they're probably not even thinking about you so all this stuff happens and you can't function you can't perform and you know maybe uh, ten thousand years ago it helped survive a you know a saber-toothed tiger attack but yeah. now it's kind of a remnant and it needs to be dealt with and so it's all about like just simply controlling your reaction and mm. reacting in a normal way and so that pause between the flash and the bang is like a skill that it's hard to develop, but once you do, 
Yeah, it was really funny. Like uh, I was at dinner last night with a guy who was talking about playing golf with some friends who got into some real extreme kind of political stuff and all these conspiracy theories. And he said, I literally went to my car and almost cried because I didn't say anything. He's like, how would you have reacted? I said, I would have thought he was an idiot and I would have moved on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <at all. laughs> yeah, he got <laughs> triggered. <laughs> had nothing to do with me. I don't care. If he yeah. wants to be an idiot, go for it. <laughs> exactly right. He yeah. wants to do that. But it is yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's powerful. And so I want to uh, change gears a little bit to another thing that you kind of, you, you made me think about. So this idea that uh, culture is the ROI of leadership. So that's just a framework that I have in my head. You know, the organizational culture is an ROI uh, on leadership. And I want to think about, hey, you're at 185 people now. And just being in conversation with you, like we're around your gravity, your energy, your skill set, your confidence, your belief towards excellence and execution. Like we can feel that. And we're like, dude, we want to we want to be like that, too, because we're in close proximity to you in this moment. I'm going, that's it's easy to predict how the people close to you probably respond and execute. But I'm just curious about like almost the challenges that you've experienced from going to like, hey, I know I can manage 10 people around me when we're a team of, of 10 and we can lead that culture and we can keep these core values intact and we can keep these principles to like, hey, where were the growth challenges? Now you had 185. We still need to be ruthless about believing these culture and these principles because these are the things that drive results. I mean, heck, core value, you know, drive the client result. But what challenges have you seen on the leadership standpoint of, of being able to scale some things that are really innate about you that, that drive your success yeah. and those really close to you? How do you drive that to 185? Or where did you experience the challenges along that journey? Yeah, well, you know, certainly there, there's a lot of them. And um, it's one of the reasons we developed the leadership framework and the training is because, you know, I, I began to realize that my leadership team is, you know, they're uh, in their fifties, mostly, um, uh, young fifties, but still in their fifties. And so one day they'd retire. And if, you know, unless is, you know, our intent is to keep the consulting business long-term. And so how do we develop the next generation of leaders? And we began to realize that the reason we're such a good leadership team is we all, they all kind of learn from each other. And from me, you know, in the early days, well, I'm not doing that same role anymore. So I don't have that level of exposure to the next generation of leaders. And so it, the, the beliefs and principles that have made us successful may have gotten watered down. And I'm not one of those guys that believes if we don't do it the way we've always done it, we'll be unsuccessful in the long run. You know, there's ways to improve. But if you're going to change something that, that has been really effective in the past, at least have an awareness that you're changing it. <laughs> you know, so if things don't go well, you at least understand what happened. But, um, but so the bottom line is uh, one of the beliefs I have just as in general in building a business, but it applies to this concept is, that as you achieve different scale, like, like, I don't know how many folks you have now, but like in the beginning, it was pretty tight. Like every five people, <clears throat> all of our processes would break down. Every time we added five people, all our processes would break down. You get to 20 people, it's every 10. You know, you get to, you get to 50 people, it's every 25. And so it kind of, they, they just break down. All your recruiting processes, all your evaluative processes, all your training, everything breaks down. And the same is true of culture and the way you engage with people and the way you make them feel, you know, like valued and, and that they help them understand the core values, all that stuff just breaks. And so if you believe that, right, if you, 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 you believe that in your belief system that these are all going to break, then when they do break, you, you know, it's, you don't freak out. You're like, oh, it's another one of those, right? It's time to address that. And if you're really going to run a world-class business, you anticipate it. And so you're constantly improving. That's what that 1% improvement is. You're constantly tweaking things 
so that they have a little bit more room to run on in terms of scale. And so we have one that we have five business units up until December. We sold one of them, but we had uh, one of our business units um, grew really fast. It grew 10 X in four years. And, you know, we just didn't do, we didn't have the right leadership team in place and we didn't fix the processes along the way. And so the business just blew up, literally everything broke at once. And so I had to go in and fix it. And that's what happened in my family business, except it wasn't growth related. It was, you know, it was a bunch of problems. And that's a terrible place to be. And that's what, that's where you see businesses that grow and then flatline is they can't get through that chasm, if you will, uh, challenge. And so, so from a culture and a leadership perspective, you, you have to just constantly innovate. You have to think through, you know, you have to make the assumption of what got me here is not going to get me to the next level. And so on a personal mm. level, the way that translates is what I love. I mean, the thing that I mean, I love with a passion that's hard to explain is my role because I have to reinvent myself every six months, you know, because if you think about me running a company with 180 people, you've got well over 50 million in revenues. We've got a whole bunch of, um, you know, complexity in the business, all kinds of different business units. Well, I'm the same guy that was in my basement by myself making cold calls, right? I'm the same guy, right? And the skill set that I had in those early days, you know, is, is, is totally different, like a thousand times different from what I do day to day now. You know, now I've got resources and I can think big strategy and, you know, we're looking at doing all kinds of cool stuff and just fast. That's why the last 48 hours I referenced were so fascinating. It was some of the most interesting days of my career, uh, talking about some strategic stuff we're trying to do. And, uh, but, you know, that, that kind of thinking wasn't valuable when you had one person. I sure. call it Tom, Tom.com in the basement. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is that the, the, there's a bridge there. There's a gap. And the only way to fix that is every single day to be thinking about how do I get better? How do, what skills do I need next? And really evolving. And so from a coaching perspective, you know, that's really important. I've had friends that have merged their business. They've gone from one size to just a huge step function change and they failed because they didn't have the skill sets necessary to run such a big business because they didn't get the privilege of, you know, learning. Growing along the way. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So what does that look like for you? Is there any any practical commentary or insights on that? Uh, again, the statistics would even show most CEOs can't evolve with their business. Yeah. Right. The, yeah, there's, no, usually, there's usually a place where they can't make the next leap. They can't make the next growth curve. How, right. how have you, how have you been able to keep adapting, whether it's your almost self-identity that like I could identify it as that kind of leader now, and I could adopt the skill set and the mindsets. Like what's been your key to continuing to grow and evolve with your business and its leadership challenges? Well, there's, you know, some of it gets back to the stories you tell yourself, right? And so one of the storylines I have in my head is that I'm okay if the business outgrows me. Um, now, I'm going to fight like heck to avoid that day, but it's, you know, it could happen and I'm okay with that. And yeah, I'm not afraid of it. So therefore, I'm not going to resist it, right? Mm. But I am going to fight and I'm going to fight, you know, to avoid it, but I'm not going to resist it if it happens. And, and in fact, in the last 48 hours, I made a decision to replace myself in one part of the business. Um, you know, that I think that some people would have struggled with from an ego perspective, but I don't sure. care because I have a higher purpose, which is achieve excellence. And, you know, and I just don't think I'm the right guy to get us there. Um, and so um, the, uh, the other piece, I think if the most valuable piece of information I think I can give to guys like you um, and to people that, who might listen to this um, is the, the best day of my life in the business, one of them was when I realized how bad I was as a manager. 
and I realized that I was bad as a manager and I wasn't getting any better. And wow. I, I, was, I tried for years to, to, when I say a manager, right? I was a, a world-class doer, right? I mean, I'm really, really good at my stuff. I could run projects with the best of them. And I'm a pretty good leader, like at the top level, I feel like, you know, I, I have a good vision I can see, but in the middle, when I'm not actually doing the work, you're doing the work and I've got to manage you, man, I can't stand it. Like sitting in those meetings, hearing people talk about projects, not having enough information to actually do anything drove mm. me bananas, man. I hated it. It literally physically drained me and I just didn't enjoy it. And so I said, I got to be a good project manager, right? That was my belief system. I got to be a good project manager to grow the business. You know, I can't like be bad at something that's so important to the company. And so I worked for years to try to get good at it. And one day I just said, I, I just don't like it and I'm not going to do it anymore. And so I focused on hiring people that had really good project management skills. And then I stepped away and people were like, you know, Tom, I want to tell you about this. I want to tell you about that. And, you know, it was all the problems and all that. And I was like, figure it out. <laughs> you know, yes. figure it out. And I stepped back. And so I quit doing that. And God, it made me so happy. I loved it. And then my brain cleared, right? All that fog, that, that busyness yeah. from all that. And suddenly I saw things that I didn't see before. And I was able to work on something else. So that's the, the, the two lessons there, right? Or one, or if you're not good at something, you don't enjoy it, innovate around it, right? It may be necessary to do, but you don't necessarily need to do it. And secondly is the opportunity cost of focusing on tactical stuff or things you don't like is tremendous because the brain power that it takes away from something more strategic is, is extraordinary. And once you get out of that situation, it's just so much easier to think. And yeah. so, um, so for me, it's been where our business has just taken huge step launches. I mean, we just made the Inc. Uh, 5000 for the 13th year in a row. So every single year. Come on. Grew, yeah, we've doubled in the last uh, couple of years. And, um, but early on, we grew, we were Inc. 500, you know, which is a proud moment for me. But, yes. Uh, anyway, the bottom line is uh, that, that the, the, the reason we have grown is that I and other leaders is not what we do, it's what we stop doing. That's yeah. what enables the business to scale and to grow. And you gotta keep in mind, when I stopped that, part of my belief system was nobody can do it as well as me. Mm -hmm. you know, our quality is gonna go down as a result. Our client results are gonna suffer, which is a big deal. But I just finally got beaten up so badly. I was like, ah, I'll do it. And yeah. you know what? We are way better than we ever were when I was in that role. I mean, we're way, like light years better. And at first we may not have been, but eventually people figured it out and they innovated and they grew and, you know, we have incredible project management capabilities now. So yeah, anyway, it's, it's been fun it's and it's made the business easy. I mean, I just at the very, very beginning, your willingness to, to not be the person in the future, just that mindset to kill the ego. You know, we have a, a phrase in our world, like, Hey, actually failure is an option. Quitting is not an option, but failure actually is an option. So that, it actually kills the ego. And so that, that piece of you that's like, I can never fail, which actually tightens you up, makes you yeah. too focused on perfection, which doesn't allow you to play freely. Like, oh, that is, is, is not good. But what I hear is you're going, hey, look, there was no, no quit in you, but you were okay failing in that role. And you were actually okay with your business failing by going, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I actually will be the best person to ever run these functions, but I'm willing to risk it. And I'll put other people in, in, in yeah. that. But I'm not scalable, right? You yeah. can't scale the individual. We have a saying, uh, heroic effort versus process. And the yeah. heroic effort is the non-scalable superstar that jumps in and saves the day, yeah. but it's not scalable, right? And so process is boring and not a lot of fun, but that's, that's yeah. what it takes.
Yeah, yeah. the team probably feels that from me. I'm always championing the process side of things uh, more than they wish I wish I would. I'm sure. Oh, it's heroic effort. Right? Fun. It's a challenge for me. I I I've more enjoyed the I I've never thought about that dichotomy, but I've always more enjoyed because I'm not a process driven person. The heroic moment, like dude, just put me in the game. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll knock it out of the park, right? But as, the ball, right? Right. But as we're <laughs> yeah. growing the business, we actually realize, like, one, I don't always want to be in that situation. And just like you said, two, man, that, that business stops scaling the moment our time or our energy is at its constraint, right? Yeah. Well, I've gone to an extreme level um, in that regard. So if you were in my office, um, in the upper right-hand corner of my whiteboard for the last you know, seven, eight years, it has a, um, the number one. And then an arrow, um, and then an, the letter M. And essentially, what that stands for is one to many. And so that's what one of my current kind of management philosophies is: whatever I spend my time on needs to have a multiplier effect, mm. right? So doing this podcast, I mean, you know, hopefully more than one person beyond you two will watch it. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, so it'll have a multiplier effect. And so yeah. when I do, like, so for example, if I go on a sales call, that creates value. Perhaps I may sell and may get some revenue. But I would be a lot more effective if I if I called on a private equity firm that owns 40 companies, right? Or if I taught my sales team something that then they went out and did a hundred times. And so it's all about how do I get leverage on my time? And so 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 I began to look at things that I was doing that had a one-to-one value, and I began to eliminate those and change more to a one-to-many kind of value. And mm. and I now I teach my leaders that you need to do the same thing. I'm like. You know, like my president of my company is on a, a call with suppliers. I'm like, why are you on that call with suppliers? He said, because the junior resource can't handle it. And I said, guess what? They never will until they get in there and they have to fail. And then they, they that embarrasses them and then they have to learn, right? Yeah. So, and you know, yeah. you, you can't scale yourself if you don't step back. And, yeah. uh, you know, and people get frazzled and, you know, stressed. But you see it a ton in consulting because there's such a natural progression where like somebody who's a great analyst is a terrible manager because he can't get out of the details. And yeah. um, so that one to many leverage effect, the only way you can get your head around it, because I'm just like everybody else, right? I, I in love with my own, you know, spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, I yeah. love doing work too, is um, you have to have a higher purpose, right? And yeah. the higher purpose for me is to build, you know, the best business of, of our type that's ever existed. Yeah. And I can't do that if I'm doing all the work, right? Yep. Yeah. So, just a quick like excerpt on a book that uh, since you're a reader too, Leadership Pipeline, um, written by some former GE guys. I think it's Drotter, but I can I can email that to you after. But Leadership yeah, Pipeline, it. I don't know. But it's it's great. It talks about pretty much that transition uh, as you go through the the uh, the organization. But they say, hey, three things that you'll always be faced with is just new answers. Is you'll have to reset your values based on your new function. So going from frontline, you know, technician to management. Okay, you got to reset the values. Uh, you got to reset your skill sets, and you got to reset your your time kind of application of like my calendar, my skills, and my my values yeah. all have to shift as I move through these levels. And they're going, hey, their their suggestion is people get stuck because they keep the old value sets, and they start facing that like uh, they start facing failure in their new function. And they actually even revert back to the things where they were getting the affirmation where they're like, well, these were the things that people celebrated me for. And that's where the, the blockages come. So how do you keep helping people kind of process through that? Um, which is, is positive. I love it. All right. I've got one question for you and then we're going to jump into the lightning round questions. Okay. Um, 
so this is something we we always hit on uh, with different companies because we're featuring companies like yourself that have been fast growing and have been for years, right? So you've got obviously a business strategy that is getting you business results, right? And you've updated that strategy. Uh, but even though things are growing, there's always challenges, right? Some are consistent and persistent, some are new. Uh, but especially in the context of our conversation and even our business, you have a huge value for optimizing your people. Understanding that there's the strategy I have and the results I'm looking for and everything between those two are the people I have making the plays I'm calling, right? Actually, the players on the field making the plays. And so that's what we consider talent optimization. What we work on is, is that element. And you guys have put a lot of resources, as you've already mentioned, into that. But what would you consider is still a challenge that you guys are facing today, right? Where are you still working on things? Where are you still seeing need? Uh, a, you know, a problem that you're trying to address or fix or an opportunity to, that you're trying to get to? Yeah, well, we're constantly working on that area. So, you know, I wouldn't present it as a, a, a problem, more as just, you know, kind of ability, opportunity to go to the next level. Yep. But, um, you know, so, particularly in this remote kind of environment, staying connected to people is really important. Um, getting people to feel like they're getting the kind of coaching and feedback that they need is really important. Uh, we always have a lot of issues where people feel like they're ready to be promoted and the firm doesn't. And, you know, in a way, when that happens, it's because they, they haven't been getting enough coaching and feedback along the way to recognize that they're not on track. And mm -hmm. so sometimes it's because nobody really bothered, nobody paid much attention until it was time to decide if they needed to be promoted. And that, that's not right. I mean, that's yeah. bad leadership. And so those kind of things we, we're constantly tweaking and working on. And, you know, so performance management systems, uh, you know, not, not technology, but just kind of process and the way you think and evaluate. As a consulting firm, we're sort of on the high end of the scale in terms of um, feedback and, you know, uh, career path and all that stuff. However, in some of our other business units, we're, we're kind of behind. We're not very good because there isn't a clear career path. You know, someone says, hey, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. And there's not an obvious place for them to go because of the nature of the, the role in the business. And that, that can be tough uh, sure. and challenging. And so um, we, we try our the thing that's unique about us with our leadership development program is we do it at all levels for every employee. So that's unusual, I discovered. I didn't realize that, but it's unusual. Most people only do it for their top 10%. So we yeah. attempt to give development training to people who, you know, regardless of what the role is, uh, so they can develop. But most people, there's some kind of career path, but they have to sort of uh, change their skill set, you know, to make that leap. And sometimes it's hard. Oh, I love it. Man, again, just want to uh, praise you guys for the, for the investment that you're obviously making, the innovation and the investment uh, and your people and how it's paying off, man. 13 years in a row on the Inc. 5000 list is, uh, that's pretty big time. Well, it's 0.04% of the people. So, you know, a fraction of one, um, fraction of a fraction of 1% yep. um, have ever done it that have been on the Inc. 5000 have ever made it 13 times. So, wow. hey, uh, one uh, quick uh, comment uh, that's relevant, yeah. I think. I mentioned we had four core values, three of which were, you know, from the early days. The fourth we added later is people matter most. Yeah, so kind of right yeah. along those lines. And people say, why didn't you have that one in the beginning? And, and I say, you know, it sounds kind of arrogant when I'm the only person to say, yeah, I matter. <laughs> people matter most and it's me. I and it's me. All right, man, let's hit this lightning round. Uh, question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your organization, what would it be? Uh, focus on client results. It's all about the client. Nice. Question number two, what's the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business and what's the worst advice? 
Mm, yeah, the worst advice is easy. That's uh, someone once told me, you can't double your business without cutting your margin in half. Um, huh. You know, and my point was, what's the point of that, right? Why would to stay this size and have the same? <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> and, uh, that guy's who said that's on my board, and uh, he had a similar business, and we doubled and actually increased our profit margin. So it was funny. Wow. Talk to him about that again. And some of the one of the best pieces of advice I got from the former CEO of Deloitte, uh, who turned out to be a neighbor of mine. He, he was a CEO when I was there, but I didn't know him. And he's I asked him, how do you um, sustain a culture with growth? And he said, the thing that I discovered was it's not the old people that sustain the culture, it's the new people because they're coming to your firm because of the culture and they're defending it because they, they don't want to change once they get there. That was really interesting. So now I tell a new class that you're in charge of sustaining this, you know, because yeah. you, know, you came here for it. Wow. Oh, that is gold. I really like that. Um, number three, being completely honest, what's the f secret fear that keeps you up at night? Uh, man, I work really hard to avoid a lot of fears, but, um, I, uh, I don't, I don't want to make a, I don't want to make a decision today that, that comes back to haunt me, particularly in a financial way later in life. And so I'm very conservative financially and I try to only spend money that I actually have, mm -hmm. but I don't take, people say you must be a big risk taker. And I say, I'm not, I'm, I'm a really good risk mitigator. Yeah. Mm. I like that. That's awesome. Uh, question number four, what's the dream results that you're driving towards every day? Yeah, I want to be, um, what I'd love to see is the next generation of leadership really take over the firm and just, and just do extraordinarily well. And, you know, just see the firm just continue to flourish and grow and to be the absolute best in the world has ever seen in our space. Mm, heck yeah. All right. Creative question here. Question number five, last question. If you could hop in a DeLorean, you get to go back for five seconds to your past. You're going to shout one thing from yourself uh, to yourself from the driver window. When would you go back and what would you say? Yeah, I'd probably go back to, um, to right after I got out of college and I'd say, chill out. <laughs> <laughs> why, why that? Why, why, why did you bring that? Why uh, is that? I, that was back when I thought I was failing and I burned a, a ton of calories, you know, worried about, failing and you know basically it's all going to be okay you know you know it all worked out well and i you know they my favorite quote is by marcus aurelius um which is how much more often are we um injured and uh, grieved by um how much more are often are we injured by our anger and grief than by that which we are angered and grieved oh wow and so it gets back to the voice in your head yeah it's, it's all you man it's all you telling yourself that stuff it's not yeah you're not actually it. injured by that there's a there's a Seneca, you know, similar similar tribe of Stoic philosophy. Seneca had a quote where he said, I have suffered much in this life and most of it is in my own head. Yeah, that's exactly it. Right? <laughs> I was like, that's where most of my suffering has come from, is actually my own head, not even the events or the things around me. Yeah, it's always that there's aha moments where you're worried about something, you realize, you know, the other person was thinking wasn't even thinking of you, right? You know, yes. That's why I've kind of got that's why my reaction to my friend who got upset about the politics came in is because I just, I've gotten good at it. I don't let other people, I don't let other people get in my head very easily. And, you know, yeah. um, I, I just kind of manage myself and not, not let external stimuli trigger me. Yeah. So rent in your mental, uh, in your mental space is very high. It's yeah. costly to, to try to rent space in Tom's head. Yeah. I love that. It's, you know what? It just it makes life easy and fun and happy. So. That's awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for making time today. Again, we know how valuable time is. And so for you to come on here is a true honor. 
uh, man, it is clear uh, after talking to you this hour why you're so respected in the industry, why you guys are experiencing so much success. And uh, I know, not I hope, I know this is going to be a great value add to all the business builders listening to this podcast. Uh, there's much to emulate from you and ISG. So thank you, sir, for coming on today. Hey, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, thanks for what you're doing and good luck. And let me know how I can help. Awesome. Yeah, Will do. Tom. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, friends, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Head to 0to5000.com for exclusive tools to grow your business. That's Z-E-R-O-T-O-5000.com.